Good morning. Our scripture reading will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses, and that will be on page 1050 in your pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and also edify one another, just as you also are doing. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we welcome you. We thank you for being here. It's an encouragement to have you. Uh, and we hope that we can encourage you uh, by us being here together to study uh, from God's Word and to worship God together. When is the second coming of Jesus going to be? You know, ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven and the angels said that He would return in like manner... Even from that very first century, there have been individuals that have believed that they knew when the second coming of Jesus would be. As a matter of fact, by 90, St. Clements declared that he knew that the coming of Jesus Christ would be that very same year. We could give examples of almost every century where one or more individuals said it's going to be this month or this date or this year. Let me give you a few more examples. In 1794, Charles Wesley, he was the founder of Methodism. He said that it would, that Jesus would come in that particular year. As we know, 17, uh, that, that year came and it went and Jesus didn't come. We skip forward to 1843 and William Miller, he was the founder of the Millerite movement and he said that Jesus would come in 1843. That year came and went and Jesus did not come. 1850, Ellen White, the founder of the Seventh day Adventist movement, She declared that within a few months, Jesus would return again. She said that in June 27th of 1850, but of course, He did not. And 1891 was the date that was set, at least that would be the furthest date out. Because back in 1835, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, he said that Jesus would come again sometime in the next 56 years. He said that on February 14th of 1835, and of course, in 1891, February the 15th, our Lord had not yet returned. The Jehovah's Witness, they really are an interesting study of making predictions of our coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They first stated that He would come again in 1914, but then when He did not come in 1914, they changed their prophecy. Now that's pretty easy to go back and rewrite prophecy, isn't it? And so they changed it and said... Well, what he's going to do is he's going to come invisibly. And he's just going to reign on earth invisibly. So then they changed his actual return to earth in a visible fashion to 1915. Then when he didn't come in 1915, they changed it to 1918. Then they changed it to 1920. Then 1925. Then 1941. Then 1975. Then 1994. 
And yet, none of those times Jesus came again. In 1982, Pat Robertson predicted that, he predicted it uh, a few months, even a few years before. He said that Jesus would come in the fall of 1982. Of course, Jesus did not. How Lindsay predicted in the late great planet Earth that, as he calls it, the rapture would begin in 1988. Now, even though this did not occur, it didn't hurt his book sales that continue to sell quite well even today. Edgar Wessonod, he was a NASA scientist. He wrote a book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And in 1988, it had already sold 4 million copies. And of course, Jesus did not come again in 1988. Friends, when is Jesus going to come again? There's something messed up about a theology that says we can put a time and a date and a year on it because that goes against what our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said. As He said, not even the angels or any man or the Son of Man knows, only the Father. And so for someone to come up with a religious teaching that they know the time, that is wrong. That contradicts God Himself. But also, not only the straight contradiction that it is, it also points to the Christian life as just an appointment. In other words, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to get ready for a dental appointment next week. Oh, I've got to reschedule my transportation because I've, I've got an appointment with my mechanic next week to put my car in the garage. Friends, is that really what the Lord wants? He wants us to live our own self-willed, selfish way. And then just before that date that's set out there, We'll keep that one appointment. What I suggest to you as we begin this study this morning of a text that's been capably read for us, where Paul wanted those of Thessalonica to understand something about the great coming of our Lord. You see what he wanted? He wanted us to make this getting ready for that appointment. He wants us to make it our life. He's not asking us to get ready for one particular day and wait until just a few minutes or a few days before that date. He's asking for us to get ready for that day by the way we give our life to Him day in and day out. Let's go back again and look at those first three verses. And notice as we look at verse 2. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, he said, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now you may want to be turning in your Bibles to Amos the 5th chapter as we make some brief comments about this phrase, the day of the Lord. You know, when Paul made this comment or this phrase, the day of the Lord here in Thessalonica, he was using a passage that scholars said probably was more than 800 to 1,000 years old. And the truth is, it may be a lot older than that. In other words, by this time, even in the original Greek at this point, it would not have even been written here as the day of the Lord. Both of the articles, the, had already been taken out by the time it's written here, and they would just call it the day of, of Lord. Day of Lord. Day of Lord. They knew what they were referring to when they talked about the day of Lord. And so we look back even with the prophet of old, Amos, and other prophets that wrote about the day of the Lord. And the way they wrote about the day of the Lord, scholars say it was probably already a term that was so well used for so many years that it was even common at the time that we read it here. I want us to not only read it here to see that God has always wanted His people to live in order to be prepared for the day of the Lord. 
In other words, this isn't something that, that's just new to us. It's not something that was new to the first century Christianity. It's something that even the prophets of old talked about. In other words, now notice, I'm not talking about just man talked about it. I'm talking about spokesmen for God talked about it. God has always wanted His people to be living in view of the day of the Lord. Let's look at this as we read in Amos, the fifth chapter in verse 18. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. And see, that ties right in to the text that we're studying this morning, where later on in the text, we'll talk about him urging us to be people of day. But you see, the problem, he says, woe to you about the day of the Lord, is they're living a life of darkness here. Let's read on in 19. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house and leaned upon his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness? And not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? What's he saying here? He's saying to Israel, who believed that they were the chosen of God simply because of their lineage through Abraham, that they were ready for the day of the Lord. You see, now this is going to make this sermon perfectly uh, applicable to our lives today. Because there's probably many of us here that are saying, I'm ready for the day of the Lord. You know what he says to these individuals that thought they were ready for the day of the Lord? They thought they were ready for the day of the Lord just because they were of the lineage of Abraham. Not the true family of Abraham that was dedicated by faith and obedience to God. And so he says, I want to tell you, you say that you're ready for the day of the Lord, but the problem is you're living in darkness. And if you're living in darkness, you can't be ready for the day of the Lord. He says, it's kind of like the man that thinks he's slipping back into safety. Why? He just saw a line over here. And and he's making his way from that line. And you can imagine he's saying, that was a close call. And as he turns around, there's a big bear ready to devour him right there. He says to the children of Israel here in Amos' day, that's the situation you're in. You're saying, look, I'm okay for the day of the Lord. I'm okay for the day of the Lord. I am a child of Abraham. He says, you're devoured. Or he says, it's like the fellow that realized there's danger on the outside. So he says, I'm going to duck into the house. And he ducks into his house. He puts his hand on the wall and says, whew, that's a close call. And a poisonous serpent bites him. And he dies in his own house. What's the message? The message that God has always had about the day of the Lord is we need to make sure that we're ready on God's terms and not on our terms. You see, we can say a lot of things about the day of the Lord that simply aren't true. We can say a lot of things about our preparation and, and uh, anticipation of the day of the Lord that simply they're not true. And so what is it that the Lord would want us to learn? Let's go back to that text again now in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. And let's see some things that he says. If you'll notice in verse 1 and 2, he continually speaks of you. Then he changes the group that he's talking to in verse 3 and he starts talking about they. Now... The chapter break here is probably untimely in 1 Thessalonians. You remember we've been studying through 1 Thessalonians and the last time that we studied in this text, a couple of Sundays ago, you remember we looked in the fourth chapter. And in the fourth chapter, he was carrying over a thought about the second coming of the Lord, but it was how that was going to affect those that had already died in the Lord. And so he said, you don't have anything to fear. Their bodies are going to be resurrected first. 
And now after he has answered that concern that they've had, he doesn't want to leave this topic of the day of the Lord without now talking about those that are alive. In other words, he says, okay, I've answered your question about the day of the Lord for those that have deceased. Now let's talk about the day of the Lord for those of you that are still alive. What does he want us to know? In verse 1 and 2, we continually see, look at the middle of verse 1. Brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. What is he saying? He's still talking to the church. And so he's saying to the church, it's kind of irony in the way that he presents it. He says, you know for certain that the coming of the Lord is an uncertain time to man. That's that's the play on words that he's giving here. He says, you know it perfectly. You know it completely. That the day of the Lord, is it going to come? Yes, it's been talked about by the prophets. It's been talked about by Jesus. And now the apostles are talking about it. Yes, it's for certain the day of the Lord is coming. But what is uncertain is the time. Now, there would be several in this audience that have had your homes broken into, cars broken into, things stolen from you. All of us know the thief does not send a memo telling the time. Think how convenient that would be if that were the case. I think about at least two that I know uh, that will be here this morning that they've had jewelry stolen out of their home. Some of it perhaps was expensive, but others was just very sentimental. Think how great it would have been, especially since part of that jewelry was sentimental and it cannot be replaced. Think how nice it would have been if that thief would have said, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm going to come on... On a Thursday night, real late, while, while you and your husband are away. And I thought I'd give you a heads up on that. Think how nice that would be. What is Jesus trying to say here about the second coming? He's not saying that everything about the second coming is a parallel to a thief coming in the night. He's simply saying there's one analogy that we can draw from that. One application from this analogy. And that is we can know this. There's not going to be... A warning ahead of time. The thief is going, just as the thief comes unannounced, Jesus Christ himself is also going to come unannounced. But now let's look at verse 3 and let's see the they. In other words, he stops in a sense speaking to the church after verse 2. And for verse 3, he changes the subjects to whom he's addressing. And then in 3 he says, For when they say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So here we see a destructive deception taking place because the second coming of the Lord is going to come as we used to say when we were little kids playing hide and go seek. Ready or not, here we come. That in a sense is what Jesus is saying here. There's going to be a day that I come back. Those of you that have been prepared for that day, whenever it shall be, it's going to be a glorious day. But he says, then there's they. They are the ones that aren't ready. And ready or not, I'm coming anyway. And it's impossible to escape that coming. Now notice what they are going to say. Before the coming of Jesus, they are going to say peace and safety. It's interesting here. 
one way to define peace is the absence of alarm. In other words, we think of a peaceful setting in a house, but then we also think of a fire and the fire alarm and everyone yelling, get out, get out, the house is on fire. Well, one setting is very peaceful, no alarm. Another setting, we see that it's frantic. He said peace and safety. The idea of safety here comes from a word that's only used two other places in the New Testament. And it is to not be shaken. In other words, it's the idea of everything is peace, it's safe, it's secure, it's just as it ought to be. But sometimes our life, they're not at peace. Sometimes our lives are shaken. And so here, just before Paul says the sudden destruction is to come, For those that are not prepared for the second coming of the Lord, those individuals will say just before that, peace and safety. Now, I'd like to give you an example, not to try to say that there's something spiritual in this example, but just to say this analogy that most of us live through and we experience this might help us to better understand this spiritual lesson. You remember 2001 on 9-11? Probably all of us stopped for a period of time that day and and we watched television and we were kind of eh, awestruck. It was kind of uh, our lives for that moment was shaken. At that moment, we didn't feel peace. It was thoughts going through our mind. What else do these terrorists have planned? Is there something else that's going to hit another city today? Will it involve future wars? And so for that moment, for that day, and for those days, we watched those events. And after that, we did not feel peace and safety in the same sense that we did the days prior to that. Now let's think about this. Do you realize that morning as individuals were riding their elevators up into the Twin Towers, do you realize that they probably just thought it was another day? Do you realize that that they probably were treating that day as if it was a day of peace and safety? Do you realize that even when the planes would have been turning and coming in their direction and the clock would have been counting down, Even though the clock of destruction was counting down, they were still in the towers. Peace and safety. And then we saw the devastation when the sudden destruction took place. Now friends, that was on one small location of this world in comparison to the entire world. Think of the entire world having a day of sudden destruction for all those that are not ready when Jesus comes again. We won't read about just a section of the world where Jesus came again. We won't turn on the televisions and and watch a section of the world where there's sudden destruction because so many people were not ready for the second coming of Jesus. Paul here is writing to us and he's being very straightforward. He's showing us something that's wonderful for those that are children of God. They've been waiting for this. They've been watching for this. But there's also something terrible. Just as a woman that is going to have a baby, it is impossible for her to not experience the labor pains. It's inevitable. And so it is. He says, the second coming of the Lord, it also is inevitable. Ready or not, He's coming again. Let's skip a couple of verses. Let's go down now to 6, 7, and 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5. And 6, 7, and 8, read with me if you will. And I'd like for you to notice he gives two examples here 
Uh, One is the example of those that are prepared. One is the example of those that are not. And he says, therefore, so the things that he's been saying is tying into this example. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day... Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Back up there in verse 6, you notice he says, Therefore, let us not sleep. Now, when we read back the paragraph before this, back at the end of the fourth chapter, when he spoke of sleep there, he was talking about physical death. Now he's going to talk about a death, but it's not going to be physical death. Now when he speaks of sleep, he's talking about spiritual death. And so he says, don't be individuals that are spiritually dead. Don't be individuals that sleep. What, what do you want us to be, Paul? He says, I want you to be spiritual individuals that are awake. I want you to be sons of light, is what he would say back earlier in verse 5 and 6. And so as we look at this, we see that as we are awake, in other words, we become people of the day, and we are awake, we see that as we are awake, we're watching. And we are sober. We're watching for the second coming of the Lord. We're sober in that our mind is clear. We're putting ourselves under God's control. But what's the other side of this? For those that are not spiritually awake, they're spiritually asleep. Now, how aware are you when you're asleep? Someone's probably thinking, oh, I'm very much aware. No, what you're saying is you're a light sleeper. Things will wake you up easy. But let's face it, when we are truly asleep, we're not aware of surroundings. We only become aware of surroundings once we are awakened. And so now he says, let me show you a picture. There are going to be those that are spiritually dead. They are spiritually asleep. You know what? They're not aware of surroundings. Why? They're living in darkness. They're not living in light. Now, what was the light? The light was the light of Jesus. And Jesus illuminates our life. He shows us what's right and wrong. But if we're over here in darkness, we're not even aware of the surroundings. And then to make it worse, how much does a person miss out on surroundings if they are asleep in the dark, drunk? You see, he's painting a picture here of a drunkard that's passed out in the dark, asleep. Now, the emphasis of this is not to say drunkenness is sin. Other passages would teach that. The emphasis here is to say, look at the difference in someone who is so unaware of what is coming. In other words... The jet planes were headed towards the tower. What if individuals would have known they were coming? Well, obviously, if they would have been awake to the surroundings, they would have made preparations to find a place of safety. And the Lord here is saying, let me tell you why people don't make preparations for the second coming of Jesus. Spiritually, they're asleep. They're in darkness. They can't see. And sin, the vices have taken over their life so that the sin has infiltrated their life. What's the answer? The answer is, he says, I want you to watch. 
Notice a few other passages where this is tied into the second coming. We could read several. Look at Matthew 24 and 42. Matthew 24 and 42, Jesus speaks of the second coming and he says, Watch therefore, notice that, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. In the 25th chapter, in verse 13, he says again, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. Now, as we read those passages and we see our need to watch, we also see the foolishness of individuals saying that they know the day or the hour that Jesus comes again. Look in Matthew, the 13th chapter. As, as we read 34, 35, 36, back in 32, he even says, But of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he says, Take heed and watch and pray. And then he talks in 34 about a man that's going to go into a far country, and he's going to leave his house and the authority of the servants, and he's going to command the doorkeeper in 34 to watch. And then he says, 35, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening or at midnight. At the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly, see there's that sudden return again, he finds you sleeping. What's that? That's unprepared. That's spiritually dead. That's being in darkness. That's not being ready. And so what's the answer? And what I say? I say to you all, watch. In other words, the Lord wants our life to be a daily looking for the second coming of the Lord. When's the last time... You have thought about the second coming of the Lord. Friends, if we haven't thought about the second coming of the Lord lately, we probably haven't been living right, have we? Because that's the very thing we are to live for. We are to live for the second coming of the Lord. That's what gives us our direction. That's what gives us our hope and our motivation. Also notice here in our text, he not only said watch, but he said also be sober. Now in a literal sense... The strict definition in a literal sense of sober is absence of alcohol. He's not talking here, though, a passage about drunkenness. Here, that is being used in a figurative term to say, be sober. In other words, to be clear-minded. In other words, to put yourself under control. And Christians put their control under God. And so we give our life to the Lord and we're to be sober. And notice here... In that, he compares it to a soldier. A soldier watches, and a soldier guards himself as he watches. How does he guard himself? With faith, love, and hope. Now, think about this. Faith, we read of in the Scriptures in Romans 10 and 17, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If we're going to live a life that is sober, we're going to live a life where we know the Word of God, and that has become... The system of belief in our life. Also, when we look at 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 1, 2, and 3 tells us that we can have all these great things in our life, but if we do not have love, it is nothing. Faith is our road map. Love is our motive. It's what causes us to serve the Lord day in and day out with all of our might. We love God with all that we are. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That's our motive that drives us through life. But there has to be a destination. And the hope of heaven is that destination. I love the way it's said here in 1 John, the third chapter. Look with me, if you will, in verse 2 and 3. And, and I hope this paints a picture for us of, of how we ought to be looking for that second coming of Jesus. 1 John 3 and 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. So see, when He's revealed is the second coming. And we're going to be like Him, because that's out of 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies will be changed. For we shall see Him as He is. Now look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So what is the salvation of hope? We need to obey that plan of salvation so that we can be saved today. And it is looking for that second coming that keeps us on track each day. It's what causes us to persevere. It's where we look forward to seeing Jesus so that we can be like Him. It's where we look forward to seeing Jesus and hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Only those that are alive spiritually are awake in the daytime to see and to be sober and to watch. Those that are asleep spiritually, that's night, they can't see. Vices and sin and drunkenness has overcome them, so they're not ready for the second coming of the Lord. Let's read the last verse as we extend the invitation here together, which will be uh, verses 9 and 10. But notice what we're to obtain. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. We usually take for granted the fact, yes, Jesus died for us. Where is it in Scripture? This is one of the clearest places that it's stated. He died for us. Why? That we could obtain salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2 and 12. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Acts 2 and 40. What's the point? The point is the Lord has done His part and now we have to decide if we're going to stay spiritually asleep or if we're going to be spiritually awake. We have to work that out our own self. Why do we want to be awake? Why did the Lord die for us? Look at that powerful conclusion of verse 10. That we should live together with Him. The Lord died for us so we could live together with Him. What a beautiful thought. I want to live together with the Lord. I want to live with the Lord now, but there is a sense in His second coming where I want to live in His presence together with Him. And so Paul writes these words, and the wonderful finale of it is, he says, now comfort one another with these. In other words, these words ought to not scare us. It ought to not be a terror, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 11. It's a terror. These words we've read are terror to people that aren't ready. But for us, we ought to be brethren of the Lord. We ought to be sons of God. We ought to be awake. We ought to be watching for that day to come. We ought to be sober in our thinking. We know, like a thief in the night, it's coming. We just don't know exactly when it's coming. You see, we're not just preparing for just an appointment. We're preparing for a life. A life here, a life into eternity. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of sins, the second coming of the Lord would be a terror for you. But today, you can give yourself to God. Today, you can be baptized into His Son. Today, as one that is a believer, that's penitent, that's willing to confess, 
Won't you be baptized for the remission of those sins? Maybe you've been baptized for the remission of those sins, but yet you might have fallen asleep spiritually. Maybe you've gone through a period of time of not watching and not being under God's control. The beautiful thing is, God gives us the opportunity to wake up. He gives us the opportunity to turn. Now, He's not going to force anyone. We've all seen parents that they force their kids to get up. Those are the kids that flunk out of classes their freshman year because they can't get their own self out of bed. Let me tell you something. The Lord's not going to sit there and make you get up. You want to sin? God will let you sin. You want to stay in your sin? God will let you stay in your sin. Oh, I'm going to change. He'll let you hit the snooze all your life if you want to. We're about to sing a song of invitation. And the only one that can respond is you. You're the one that has to decide if you want to wake up and come back to God. He's done His part. Let's make sure that we do our part so the coming of the Lord is a glorious occasion for us.